I'm Jay Farner, CEO of Quicken Loans, America's premier home purchase lender. We've created a new way to protect you from unpredictable interest rates. Our exclusive rate shield approval. First, we lock your interest rate for up to 90 days. Then, if rates go up, your rate stays locked. But if rates go down, your rate drops. Either way, you win. Call us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year fixed rate loans. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLS number 3030. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy, uh, I guess we're really lacrosse season now. I guess we were last week, too, but I wasn't here, so. That's fair. Dan was, uh, <laughs> Dan was unfortunately ill last week. Ari filled in for him admirably, though, Obviously, without the uh, the usual divergence into random mid-major school that literally no one else has ever talked about on a podcast. Yeah, I mean, well, I think I think at this point, podcast ain't played. Nobody has talked about like every random mid-major. They're really taking the mantle on for that um, intelligently. Uh, but that's but no yeah, way. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and, and and Jeffrey's just like random knowledge about like every Sun Belt team. Um, I mean, it, it was weird. I was listening, and I was like, oh, they haven't gone off track once. I mean, <laughs> do they know what this podcast is all about? I know Ari hasn't done it before, but you got to throw some, some Tulane, some Louisiana Lafayette in there somewhere. And aside from the, like, scheduling stuff, which, you know. Oh, boy. <laughs> we don't want to talk about – we don't actually want to talk about those teams when we're playing them because that means we're playing a stupid team that doesn't benefit us. We just want to talk about them just for who they are. Also fair, and we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> I'm sure we will. Yeah. Un- unfortunately, uh, obviously, there's uh, some sad news in the Syracuse community today, um, and we'll talk about it briefly. Uh, Pearl Washington passed away this morning. Uh, for those listening, uh, yesterday, uh, it rough day for a lot of Syracuse folks. Um, it was really great to see the outpouring of, I mean, you'd seen it a lot with, with the Pearl shirts and, and how much everyone had really, you know, kind of rallied and, and tried to get as much money into that GoFundMe as possible, but um, unfortunately, you know, it, it was just, it was Pearl's time it, too soon, but but his time nonetheless. Um, but yeah, it was it was heartbreaking to see even a guy like Jim Beheim, who's usually so stoic um, and, and completely, you know, a rock in every sense of the word, um, me really, really broken up by it, and you just saw, I mean, from Madison Square Garden to Joe Biden and so many other folks, um, just just it, as a Syracuse fan, even though I wasn't lucky enough to see him live, um, still felt very good to know that despite all the nonsense that goes on during every season, uh, at the end of the day, the college basketball community uh, was a lot more closed and a lot more, um, I guess, familial than, than you, you come to realize during the season. Yeah, I thought the outpouring was, was really touching, coming from literally like every angle you could imagine. Biden obviously weighing in, like you said, Chris Rock, who apparently knew him from growing up in Brooklyn, uh, tweeted something, uh, and then obvi- pretty much everyone that's ever tweeted about college basketball before was on Twitter today talking about their memories of Pearl. Um, like you, I didn't get to see him play. I think the one lasting thing uh, for me, I never met Pearl. Um, I know he was around campus. I was probably like in the dome at the same time as him a couple times. But um, there was one time I was going back to school before, like during my junior senior year, and I was taking a, a Greyhound up, um, and I was walking through the Port Authority, and there was a guy uh, sitting there, um, 
you know, and he called, I was wearing a Syracuse hoodie or something and he, you know, called out like, Hey Syracuse. So I, you know, I turned around and he just started talking about how he grew up in Brooklyn and how he, uh, you know, saw Pearl Washington play like they're the same age or something. And talked to me about, talked about Pearl for like 15, 20 minutes. Um, I luckily didn't miss my bus, but like, it, it's just crazy that, that, you know, a guy who played on like the playgrounds there made such an impact locally. And then obviously with what he did at Syracuse, which, you know, on the court, he was great, but, um, just like bringing the big East into the spotlight, which in turn kind of brought ESPN to where it is today. Um, and Syracuse, the program like Jim Beheim pays, you know, so much, uh, so much of the credit that, uh, he gives to like anyone goes to Pearl. Um, and you know, he was there right when the dome came open. So like all these things, it was like a confluence of events. And if Pearl hadn't been the superstar that he was like Syracuse might not be what it is. The big East, like maybe would have been like a Georgetown dominated thing that wouldn't have been as competitive. Uh, college basketball might not have taken off. Like, I mean, I'm sure it would have still, you know, become a big thing, but Pearl was like a defining player for all of these things, which is really cool. Oh, I agree. I think, you know, college basketball would have, would have managed regardless, but I think um, what it did was it, it it helped, helped the game transcend and and Syracuse and the Big East transcend um, the tournament as the spectacle it is and, and, and take it from, you know, your, your just one, you know, month of college basketball into, um, you know, the Mondays and, and, and the Saturdays and, and, and all the other, you know, days of the week that, that the Big East and ESPN and Syracuse, um, you know, really kind of enjoy the benefits of and then, you know, over time ushered into the rest of the game. I think that's why we see, you know, uh, I mean, yes, the college basketball community is still much smaller than the college football community. Um, but at the same time, you know, you see a, a large number of people that still, us included, you know, are happy to sit through any kind of, like, any game between two teams um, any day of the week. And, and a large, you know, part of that credit goes to Pearl. Um, you, you brought up a good point there on the uh, the gentleman you ran into over at Port Authority. I know um, I was actually down in San Diego a couple of weeks ago um, before the uh, Middle Tennessee game, and I was wearing a Syracuse shirt, and uh, a couple guys actually outside of a Whole Foods in San Diego called out to me and started talking about Pearl. Not, they didn't even go to Syracuse. They were just guys who, um, you know, just appreciated watching him growing up and, I guess, you know, kind of echoed, echoed some of the things that, uh, that Mike Hopkins said as a West Coast kid, too. Um, so, yeah, I, I think sad day, um, and it's, like most sad things, it also gets to reveal some happy things. Um, and one of them, I think, is just... People, people bringing out the archives to, to remember and, and talk about a player that, that gets far too often forgotten by today's kind of emphasis on you know, recent stars or the NBA or you know, draft potential or whatever it is. And I think it was, it was good that you know, a whole new group of kids now get to, to really experience, um, even if it's just in a couple of YouTube clips today or at, or at SportsCenter and Memoriam, um, get to, you know, see just how good of a player Pearl was and and what Syracuse was like before we turned into, you know, a top 10 program every year. Yeah. And just like the little anecdotes, like you said, were really cool. Uh, I forget who it was, the, the Boston Globe Celtics writer who I guess grew up in Syracuse or was, you know, here earlier in his life and said he worked with Pearl at this, uh, at the parks and, and Pearl cleaning the bathrooms when just, you know, busy wanted the parts to look clean and, and something to be proud of. And then, um, I think it was um, Rakeem Christmas who posted that 
he and Pearl were like taking some of the same grad level courses just a couple of years ago. Uh, I guess Pearl was was doing coursework like as recently as two or three years ago when when Rack was like just he had these really cool connections to people all through the town of Syracuse, obviously the school, and then obviously it was like a, a total back in Brooklyn. Like it's it's pretty rare that a person makes that kind of uh, connection to people across like these very three um, individual unique communities, uh, and Pearl did that so. It was, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's super sad, and obviously any, anytime anyone passed away at 52, like, it's entirely too early, but you hope that if that happens, they leave behind some, a legacy where, you know, people can't help but, but share their stories about him, like, for an entire day, and, and to make, like, headline news in the sports world uh, is not an easy thing to do, especially because we know, like, where, uh, you know, what pushes the buttons the right way, and, you know, you have the draft coming up in two weeks, and you have all these other things happening and, and Pearl was a big part of, of the news cycle today and not everyone would have, would have made that a kind of an impact. Completely agree. And like you said, it's a testament to not just who he was on the court, but, but who he was as a person. And I think that's the, that, that's when you really see the outpouring like this is when, is when people are, are just inherently good. And, and again, it's just a, it's a testament to him and, and, you know, it's a testament to, again, the, the, the people he touched that, that he was able to have such an impact despite, you know, a, a fairly short um, NBA career that he was still, he still resonated this much with people. Um, so we hope Pearl rests in peace, uh, you know, thoughts and, and prayers and whatever um, else you may want to give a go out to his family. Um, sad day, but, but one that hopefully has, um, you know, s- s- some positive for, for folks. Right, I think uh, I think Derek Coleman said it best. He uh, he said that he probably must probably uh, crossed over Jesus dead into heaven, which was I thought maybe the coolest thing that anyone said about it today. Um, so when I, you know it, it's sad, but uh, it's always good to, to kind of see you know instead of just mourning over it totally, like watching all the highlights that everyone's posted and, and the cool tribute that Jeff Goodman did on it. A lot of a uh, lot of cool stuff um, as Syracuse fans. We're, we're not always the center of the college basketball world where people are, are uh, being positive about the program. So um, unfortunately this is how, how that happened, but uh, it was really, really cool to see everyone reminisce. And obviously uh, our thoughts are out to everyone affected and his family and, and uh, coach Bayheim, who obviously was getting choked up today, which is a, is, I don't know that I can remember the last time that happened. Um, maybe, you know, at once one or two other times since I've been following the team, but Clearly, uh, he was that kind of guy. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was. Uh, I'm, I'm like jealous now that I didn't get to see him play live because that was obviously a, a pretty amazing period of time for Syracuse basketball fans. So, hopefully, everyone that is old enough to say they uh, they were able to do that should, uh, really appreciates what they uh, what they got to see. Agreed. Um, and just to kind of end it on uh, on a one note, I know. Um... Invisible Sword, Invisible Sword has been put together a really nice piece today, um, you know, and again, he, he made sure to point out, like, he didn't want to take away from, from people who actually had real personal connections, but um, nonetheless, he, he provided a real cool personal look from someone who watched him play uh, growing up, and it was just, to me, it was, it was a great read. It was one of the better ones that came out today, and yes, it, it's on the site, so a little bit of a plug, but um, nonetheless, uh, I really enjoyed it and hope that everyone, if, if you didn't get to read it today, please do. 
Yeah, that was that was very good. So I definitely recommend that one. And there were so many good pieces today. So if you uh, looking for a couple of hours to spend on this, as it'll be Thursday, um, there's plenty of, of good Pearl stories out there uh, that you can go catch up on. Agreed. Um, switching gears a little bit um, to football, and again, we're going to kind of bounce around today, um, just because Dan and I were talking about in our very brief pre-show meeting this. There's there's not a lot of you know long running news. There's just a lot of very kind of quick hit news. So that's kind of what this podcast is going to be like. Um, so some football stuff, uh, specifically recruiting. Um, David Davis decommitted today. Uh, that probably didn't surprise a lot of people uh, who have followed his commitment and followed the, the offers he's gotten. Um, have wondered how we've held on to him this long. Um, but the surprising part, of course, is that he went to Florida Atlantic. Um, he's the second flip to Florida Atlantic in the last, like, three months, which doesn't really make much sense to most. But, Dan, what's your, uh, what's your take on this situation? Um, I think the two factors you have to look at here, A, he was a Schaefer commit. I know he, he stayed on with, uh, with through Baber's hiring, and he said, you know, he said all the right things and sounded excited about playing under Babers. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's not the person he committed to. So um, he did what he had to do. And then B, he probably realized at some point in the last uh, couple months um, that, A, he had never visited Syracuse, so he hasn't been up here. Um, maybe at some point he looked at a map and was like, you know, that's really far away. Um, so, you know, getting cold feet in uh, April of, you know, 10 months before you have to sign is not the biggest deal in the world. And yes, losing a commit to FAU is weird and, you know, maybe a little um, dis, uh, disconcerting. But uh, I wouldn't expect him to stay an FAU commit, uh, if I'm being very honest. Sorry, sorry to all the Owls fans that I know listen every week. Um, I, I imagine he has bigger offers, and I know a lot of those teams like backed off probably because he closed up his recruitment for a while. I wouldn't be shocked if, like, a Miami came through or another school in that area, even like a, a UCF or a, a USF is a pretty big step up from FAU. So I wouldn't worry about um, him flipping to the Owls. Clearly, that's probably just something he felt comfortable with for now. They, they had probably been pushing him pretty hard because they thought they might be able to get a kid to renege on a, a commitment to a school that he hadn't visited that's, you know, a thousand miles away. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's really, it is what it is. Like I, I would have, Love to have him uh, on the roster next year, but these things, we all know how quickly these, these recruitments change, and I'd rather have it happen in April 2016 than February 2017, when you know you assume that someone's going to show up and they don't. So uh, I'm sure that the, the staff will be fine. They, they will find another use for that scholarship. I completely agree. And, you know, I, I mean, Richard Smith flipped day of this year to FAU, and that was I, – that's a damaging blow. Um, and much more of one than this. Like you said, I don't think he's, he's long for the Owls. Um, I know Miami was originally in on him, um, and then they kind of backed off. Um, again, whether it's UCF or USF or, I mean, could be any other school. I mean, who, we know how these things work. Some of the kids that we've been in on early um, in recent years have started off with a couple MAC offers, have gotten a Syracuse offer, and then by the end of the cycle they're getting offers from LSU, um, Arkansas, and the like. So... I, I I can't get caught up in it. No one should get caught up in it. it it's weird, yes, but but only if that's the the final destination. 
Um, and again, it, it, it very, very unlikely um, to be unless there's some sort of qualification issue that comes up later on in the process. Yeah, which we don't know anything, you know, that we, we don't know that there is one or there will be one, but um, definitely not going to worry too much about it this far out, um, especially when earlier in the week we've been, you know, we've had some really good recruiting news. So obviously things are fronts, um, which is good. Agreed. And on that note, uh, some of the good recruiting news. Um, I guess we'll start with, um, I guess, his replacement in the class. Uh, you know, Florida wideout uh, Shara Johnson, uh, unrated right now, but, um, you know, he, he moved over to Booker T. Washington High School, which a lot of people say a lot of nice things about. Um, I follow recruiting to the extent that I can do my job here, but... I wouldn't say that I, I have a lock on every single uh, powerhouse. Apparently, Booker T is pretty good. Um, and apparently, going there and doing well there can really help you go from an unrated prospect to a three- or a four-star guy. Um, from the tape, he seems like he could be a great receiver in the slot. That seems to be the, the conventional wisdom. Um, and, and that's a great fit for, for what Syracuse wants. So I, I think, you know, I doubt we're done um, when it comes to wide receivers in this class. I'd expect at least another one or two. Um, but, you know, Johnson seems like a great start and, and you know, stars are not, uh, it seems like, it seems like a good fit for what Babers wants to do. Yeah. And actually on the, on that front, um, sometime in the last couple of days, since he just committed here three days ago, um, he got three stars from 24 seven sports. Uh, they must've just rated him and they put him at 185th at receiver and, uh, and they're actually in their internal rankings. He's ranked 113th in the position and 110th in the state of Florida. So that's pretty good because um, there are uh, hundreds of, of recruits in Florida. And like you said, Berkeley T. Washington, um, very good football school. We've gotten players out of there before. Um, and anytime you can go into Miami and get a, a talented player, um, it seems like he was kind of an overlooked one. That's good. Hopefully we hang on to him, uh, which is always a concern uh, with the Florida kids. But uh, like you said, he profiles well and to, to fit the Babers' offense. And as we'll come to find out, um, this offense requires a lot of receivers. Uh, he runs 3-4 wide pretty often um, with you know a bunch of different still sets. So uh, he should this guy should slide in uh, pretty nicely in the slot. And uh, another big gift for Nick Monroe, who is definitely the early like recruiting superstar coach on the staff. Um, he was in on so many kids late in the cycle last year after the staff came in. And uh, he's doing it in here. Yeah, I mean, Nick Monroe is, is – there's so many great recruiters in this class, it seems. And I think the big deal, and it's what you and I and others have talked about, is that these guys have all recruited together before. Um, and that's kind of the big win over a, a staff that's been created from scratch like Schaefer did. And, again, that's not to, it's not to you know, put them down. It's just more to say, like, there's an, there's an obvious advantage to knowing how you work with – with a group of people before you actually do it. Um, and I think for this group, you know, we, we for some reason worried about how Florida recruiting would do when George McDonald left and Florida recruiting did just fine. We worried about how Florida recruiting would do when Shaver's staff left, Florida recruiting got better. Um, I, I would fully expect, considering the Bowling Green was able to lure kids from Florida, that Syracuse would do just fine on that front. Uh, Nick Monroe has, again, really done some great work in a short amount of time, and I doubt he's done yet. Um, we got a lot of time left in the cycle. Um, you know, guys like Johnson, um, and hopefully many more, will even out um, a loss of a guy like Davis. Um, 
the last recruit we'll talk about, um, Tommy DeVito, um, over from Don Bosco in New Jersey, uh, recruited earlier last week. Well, I guess later in last week, but at this point, that's almost seven days ago. Uh, one, one of my favorite uh, images ever associated with a commitment. Uh, he took some flack for it. I don't really care. I thought it was awesome. He didn't even create it either, so I, I think it's really like a, a non sequitur. But in any case, DeVito's a quarterback. He's Don Bosco's starter. I do know a little bit about New Jersey recruiting, so Don Bosco is one of the better football-playing schools on a year-to-year basis, and being their starting quarterback um, usually means pretty good things. Um, you know, DeVito's a, pro- a pro-style guy, um, and, and that's kind of what you'd expect for Babers. I don't think Babers is completely locked in on that concept yet, especially because if Dungy can show himself to um, kind of evolve the position a bit, uh, you might see, you know, for a few years, Babers kind of just see see who who can throw the football, and then if mobility comes with that, um, then awesome. So, so yeah, I, I think Devito is he looks like he he's a pretty solid commit. Um, I mean, obviously, you don't really know until National Signing Day shows up, but Devito seems like a guy who um, you know we can kind of bank this class on and 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 help recruit. Um, and take back a, a lot of those New Jersey guys who, in the past, it, had gone to some of the other Big Ten schools or Big Twelve, or not Big Twelve, sorry, Big Ten schools or the former Big East schools. That some of them are now in the American Athletic Conference. Um, I know last year we we, we did a, a really nice job encroaching upon, um, you know, what Rutgers was doing. I think we're we're going to be able to do so again this year. So the, the more we can take those recruits, the more likely that you know we're going to come out on top in in the race to be the better. Um, you know, non-Penn State uh, Northeast team. Yeah, I, I think anytime you can go into Don Bosto and pick up a kid, especially a quarterback, um, not that they're like a, a quarterback factory, but when you get a quarterback, like there's a decent chance that you can convince some of his teammates to come too, just because they are naturally leaders. Um, and I guess uh, DeVito packs it up with his like weird Napoleon uh, Photoshop, which I also appreciated. Um, obviously he didn't do it. Someone did it for him, but, uh, but that was definitely one of the, one, one of the more interesting, uh, edits I've ever seen a kid use to commit. So he has that going for him. Um, and it was nice to get another win. Like you said, over our, our recruiting peer group here, BC added off route to him, uh, Maryland's Rutgers, uh, Wake Forest. So like those are the teams we've been recruiting against pretty, uh, regularly in the last couple of years, uh, and picking up someone that they all wanted always good. Um, obviously beating at Rutgers for a Jersey kid's good, uh, and getting into Boston was huge. Um, and I mean, we had a leg up cause, uh, Bowling Green had an offer out to him. I'm not sure if it was under Babers or not, but I imagine that they were at least familiar with him. So maybe there was some groundwork laid there. Um, but yeah, I, I think you always try to get a quarterback early in the cycle if you're recruiting them, um, just because they're very good at, uh, adding other players to the class and being that extra recruiter. Um, which we've seen in the past uh, with guys, obviously, you know, there are guys that didn't end up working out, Zach Allen, A.J. Long, but when they were committed to the team, they were, and, and obviously A.J. made it to campus and was on the team for a couple of years, they were very good about uh, reaching out to other players and getting them to commit as well. So uh, locking up DeVito early was definitely big and uh, will, should pay dividends in this class. So excited to see that going forward. Agreed. And you know what? You, you brought up some good points there. I think, like DeVito said himself um, when he was talking to Scout, um, you know, 
Syracuse already gave him a list of New Jersey guys that, that he they want him to go after. He gave them a list of some other guys that, that he thinks they should go after. Obviously, I think the majority of the guys they end up following through on are going to be the ones the staff came with, like came listed with. But um, at the same time, if DeVito really likes a kid who you know is, is kind of in, in the skill set wheelhouse and, and in the general skill range of you know what we're looking for, those three star guys or maybe underrated twos, potentially a reach for. Um, I mean, I, I don't see why not. Um, you know, quarterbacks, like you said, go go early in the cycle and, and largely stick around to their commitments. Um, there's plenty of changes, obviously, but I'd say there's probably less turnover with quarterbacks than most. Um, they are, by and large, uh, leaders because they are on the field. Many of them are off the field as well. They're not as easily swayed um, as other positions. There's... There's just a, a sure thing attitude about all of them, um, where where once they're locked in, they're locked in, um, and and you see it especially and and to back it up, you see it especially with with these blue chip kids, um, you know, Bud Elliott writes year after year how important it is if you're going to lock up a blue chip quarterback in particular, you got to lock them up in the like first few months of the the cycle or even before uh, the cycle begins uh, because they're unlikely to move. You get the very very occasional. Uh, movement of a four or five star quarterback but you're largely locked into those guys um, once they're on campus and then they want to do work for you so that they know the team surrounding them Um, I think DeVito seems like one of those guys and again it's it's always great to not only beat out Rutgers just because of the the talent base in New Jersey but beat out consistently um, of late you know teams like Wake Forest and and, and Boston College and, and Maryland and I mean Maryland's obviously recruiting on another level right now um but, but hopefully over time, you know, Syracuse can kind of get more into those conversations um, and, and, and beat, you know, Rutgers and, and BC with even more regularity and start really fighting above their weight the way Maryland does. Right, and I think a lot of it has to do with, like, this isn't maybe the best thing overall uh, because there are lots of issues with how it works in, in basketball, but I think the college football recruiting process, especially with quarterbacks, is becoming – almost more reminiscent of what happens with like the AAU and stuff. Um, not that there are AAU football teams, but um, there are so many, like the seven on seven camps, which like was barely a thing when I was in high school, not that terribly long ago. And now it's huge. You have all these national camps, you have all these regional, uh, like the opening camps and rivals and scout. And these were things that are just like, these are pretty new uh, conventions. Like maybe there was one or two of them, back when I was a high school senior in 2007, 2008. And now, uh, you know, not even 10 years later, uh, the whole game has changed. So there's a lot more intermingling between, uh, a, you know, a prospect and a player from another team, kind of like in basketball, like you have all these kids have relationships as they play each other uh, across the nation for, for years. Um, and it's not quite that in football, but uh, someone like DeVito, assuming he's attending these seven on seven, as a Boston player, he definitely is. They have, you know, they do play the whole game and they play nationally too. So he has all these connections with guys who he's met uh, both all across New Jersey. And then, I mean, Bosco plays games in like Florida. I'm sure that they play all over the place. I could pull up their schedule for this upcoming year. Um, so getting someone like that who has all these connections who can, you know, grow, maintain these relationships on the recruiting trail, um, very valuable. No doubt. Um, and we're a little bit before our typical halftime, but why not use this as a nice little starting point? Uh, Dan, you have two weeks of drinking to report on. What have you, uh, what have you been consuming? I'm just pulling it up now. Um, 
I didn't drink too much as, as, as we said earlier, I was sick for, I'm still like kind of getting over a cold. Nothing that totally stopped me, but, um, uh, there was some stuff I had. Um, all right. So I, uh, the most notable thing I had was a uh, single cut beers. Uh, that's brewery in Queens. I've spoken about before. Um, I had their softly spoken magic spells, uh, which was a double I, uh, Imperial IPA. Um, I remember it being, it, it's, it's super unfiltered. It has, uh, not super citrusy, um, almost like a, a bit of a darker taste actually. Um, but pretty good. Not the best singles cut thing I've had, but, uh, I mean, everything they do is at least like quite good. And I think this stacks up, um, I had Two Roads Brewings, Honey Spot Road IPA. It's a white IPA I have fairly often. From up in Connecticut, I've talked about that before for sure. Um, I had a bunch of uh, Dale's Pale Ale, which is, uh, again, talking about that a fair amount, because it's one of the go-tos that you can find all over the place, especially at a lot of the bars by me. Um, and those mid-pounders are always a pretty good deal, I think. Um, and then I had you know, a couple other normal things from... Uh, um, a gang, um, and a lot of the other favorites. So not too much uh, adventurous stuff. And also, I wasn't drinking all that much just of uh, being sick, and that's not a good thing to do when you're sick, I guess, with your immune system down. But uh, overall, hopefully, getting back into it a little more. Now the weather's finally warming up here in New York. We've had a couple 60, 70 degree days for the first time this year. So hopefully the drinking is back uh, on the table a little bit more going forward here. I would very much hope so. I, uh, yeah, I really can't avoid drinking when I'm sick either. Which, and, and I've been pretty sick <laughs> for some reason a couple times this year, and have and have kind of powered through mostly because I end up on vacation uh, when I'm sick lately. I don't really enjoy that. Hopefully, knock on wood, that doesn't happen next week when I'm in Texas. Uh, that also means that we are going to be off next week. Um, scheduling notes for both Dan and you, the listener. Uh, we will not be having a show next week. I'll be on vacation, uh, drinking quite a bit down in Texas. Um, some things that I drank in the last week uh, had an Iron Sunrise. Uh, it's an IPL from Modern Times. Ridiculously refreshing. It's like It's bottled and bomber, but could easily be thrown in a can for a great beach beer. Um, had this year's batch of Modern Times Booming Rollers IPA. Um, really, really excellent. Had this bottle sitting around, uh, Dan would appreciate. Uh, St. Arnold's Pumpkinator, um, definitely uh, one of my favorite pumpkin beers on an annual basis. Uh, a buddy of mine down in Houston um, always tries to send me a bottle. Um, and this one seemed off-season, but had some squash ravioli with it, totally in-season. So definitely, uh, yeah, if you're going to drink something out of, out of seasonal order, the way to go is pair it with uh, the appropriate food. Um, tried out uh, Sierra Nevada's uh, Otrevez, their Goza. I know that's pretty much everywhere. Um, and grabbed some of that. Hadn't had it at that point. Also grabbed uh, Lagunitas uh, Waldo Special Ale, their, uh, their cannabis brewed uh, 420 ale that, uh, that is always very, very enjoyable. And triple IPA, uh, dank as hell. Very, very good. Um, appropriate of the, uh, the fake holiday that it, that it is brewed for um and then also enjoyed some run the pigeon uh from monkish monkish was working with other half uh brewing um over in brooklyn of late to uh to brew some unfiltered um east coast style ipas um 
This is the second beer in, in that kind of trial run. Um, it was actually really, really good. Um, got it super fresh. Um, there was actually a line. We don't do lines outside of breweries on the West Coast, especially in L.A. We just kind of do, you order it online. Um, it's first come, first serve online. When it sells out, it sells out. And then you have like a three-week window to pick it up. Um, so myself and a lot of others waited outside uh, Monkish to, to grab a four-pack of cans, and, and they were delicious. Um, then on Sunday, I uh, jumped up to one of my other favorite spots around, uh, Highland Park Brewing. Uh, it's up in L.A. proper um, in the Highland Park neighborhood. Um, so not really that close to me anymore, but still managed to have a couple beers from them. Had a beer spaceship, their pale ale. I had one up, their double IPA, and then Hello LA, um, one of my favorite brews um, in the county. That's their uh, standard IPA, and yeah, really enjoyed all those. So, good week of drinking, and another one coming up. Yeah, that other half monkish uh, collaboration. It's pretty interesting. It's a, a solid pairing of breweries. I didn't I hadn't heard about that, so I got to see if uh, do you know if they distributed to Brooklyn at all or. I don't know if they did, although Aaron told me that he saw some because their first beer in that series was like a true collaboration beer, not just like a, hey, we'll tell you how to brew these correctly. It was uh, called First Things First, and Aaron told me he saw somebody with a can of it in, Brook- in Brooklyn, and I was very surprised by that. I haven't heard about any distribution plans out there, but I, I would almost bet that there's some that end up there, but maybe only at the brewery specifically. Yeah, I don't even know if Other Half has a brew room or a, a tasting room. Um, I know a couple of the other Brooklyn breweries uh, don't, like Grimm, which makes awesome stuff, which I don't know if you can even get out there, but uh, they're fairly new and they don't. So uh, I don't even, I'm not sure if Other Half does. Uh, Got to check that out. Um, but there are a lot of, like, there are some places in Brooklyn where you can kind of find stuff that you aren't supposed to in <laughs> New York um, on a hush-hush basis that I've learned about in recent weeks, so... I'll see if I can track one of those down if I get down there. I was there over the last weekend, so we'll see. Jealous. We're going to have to go next time I'm in town. For sure. Uh, and, yeah, it looks like no other half does have a tasting room. Ah, I added it over there. I've been to a bunch of the other ones in Queens and Brooklyn, so didn't realize I had one. Yeah, you uh, you definitely need to get over there. Cause they are, they're definitely my favorite New York brewery. Um, uh, and I've had... I've had a decent amount of their stuff, um, and then I've definitely tried out some others. But yeah, I, uh, Aaron usually tries to hook me up with, with stuff from them when he can. Yeah, they're very good. I gotta get you some uh, single cut stuff because they. Uh, I think they're starting to to, to bottle and, and can more stuff now. Oh, um, so good! For the first time, I think they just started. So I gotta get some of their stuff. They 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 go out on the on a limb with some of the stuff they make too. I feel like I know what if I know I've had a couple things from them and I liked whatever the hell it was the last time I was in town. Yeah, and they 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 make like small batches of just like all kinds of stuff. So they're and they they their distribution around the city's been pretty good. So I can you know go into any decent beer bar and there'll be like one or two of them. But I feel like they're different every single time because they're just constantly trying new things, which is cool. A, a little frustrating because you want to like have something again and you can't find it, but. uh I always appreciate when people, when, when breweries, you know, try new things and, and see what works and try bold, bold different types of beer. Agreed, agreed. I guess we'll talk about sports again because, you know, beer can only get you so far around here. Um, I guess 
One piece of good news, uh, APR scores came out today. That in itself isn't good news, um, but the fact that Syracuse uh, exceeded the minimum scores um, for every sport, great. Um, and on top of that, uh, every sport just about improved. Um, and women's soccer got a perfect score of 1,000. <coughs> men's basketball jumped all the way up to the, fact, the point where they're around like 980. Um, and, and a few years ago, they were near, pretty close to the cut line. Um, Football is is slowly but steadily climbing, um, you know, into the mid nine seventies. So yeah, I, I think, you know, you can't give Mark Coyle all the credit necessarily, especially when most of the work was done under Doc Gross. But um, Syracuse obviously took the the warning about its its lagging APR scores to heart, even if it doesn't believe in the in the metric itself. Um, and, and you're definitely seeing improvement, and and hopefully, you know, the ACC continues to rub off on us. Uh, when it comes to that academic, uh, you know, achievement that that a lot of the other schools seem to kind of blindly walk into. Yeah, um, as you know, with the APR, it's a tough thing because, like, the APR just uh, as a metric itself is utterly stupid and unnecessary, um, and really easy to game. So, like, I I'm all for uh, promoting the academic achievements of Syracuse's uh, athletes. Um, I'd rather do it with guys like Team Christmas and uh, Chino Oboko, who graduated in three years, um, and which is something that's actually you know difficult to do. Rather than you know the APR, where basically Kentucky gets a perfect APR score every year because they enroll their kids in the right classes to uh, make sure that they are not affected by the fact that half their team leaves to the NBA every year, which is commendable. It's what they should be doing, um, and I have no compunction with you know teams gaming that system because it's stupid but it's a system again that you game pretty easily once you figure it out um and that's kind of shown by the fact that like since uconn basically um i don't think we've had a major program uh get uh a postseason ban for the apr it's always a bunch of small schools for some reason like half of the historically black colleges always get banned which i don't know why or what the reason for that is but I think like eight of those schools got it this year, and then like no major program was even all that close. Um, so I'm happy that Syracuse is not even close to being banned in any of these sports. I'm happy that they are consistently rising, but it doesn't mean that we have like you know it doesn't mean that you have a bunch of of brilliant student athletes or that you don't. It means that everyone has a 2.0 and is staying in school and and transferring with uh, decent grades and leaving for the NBA with decent grades. So I guess hooray for that. Yeah, way to go. We did the minimum across <laughs> the board. Everyone did the minimum in every sport. Perfection and minimalism. Or, or did better, but not worse. Hooray us and every other school. You, congrats UNC on their 1,000 APR school by the men's <laughs> Scholars, <good>. Scholarship <laughs> and minimal action. In other news, and um, bad news, um, over the weekend, and I hate that we're going to bad news again, but... These things happen every so often, as far as bad news. Um, everyone probably knows about the stabbing incident that, that occurred um, on Sunday. Uh, allegedly, Nashon Howard used to be um, a member of the Syracuse football team, was dismissed, um, came in in pretty much a blind rage, and with using a pocket knife that he had on his person, um, stabbed current uh, heavy contributors slash contenders for a starting role um, in the secondary uh, Chauncey Sism and uh, Corey Winfield. Uh, obviously, that's very, very bad news for both players. Uh, it seems that both have been, you know, 
Uh, Winfield is out already. Uh, Sism probably going to be there for another day or two. Um, obviously, our thoughts are with them um, in their recovery. I don't really know, and I don't think anyone's going to know anytime soon, uh, what the extent of, of their injuries or recovery is really going to be. Um, and then, obviously, the other angle of this uh, is, you know, what happens to Howard, a kid who is, is clearly troubled um, and, and, and now, you know, potentially faces... Uh, some more serious charges and, and, and jail time for his role in assaulting, you know, two men. Um, without getting into all that, I think that's as far as we need to cover Howard. Um, Dan, why is it that, that violence seems to, to exist on Syracuse's campus so much? I mean, we, we, we've seen incidents like this happen with the football team in particular, Many times, it, it's rarely something involving the, the football players themselves other than being victims. Um, do you feel like that we're, we see more of this than, than other schools do? Um, there's probably a little bit of like uh, familiarity bias because we follow Syracuse a little more regularly than, or a lot more regularly than other schools, but there definitely seems to be... Um, some existing issues with the program, which is unfortunate because I think most of them are just inherent. Um, the school's location, you know, obviously there are, are some neighborhoods around which aren't great. Um, and I think here you have a, an issue with Howard being a local kid um, and uh, maybe knowing people. I've, obviously we've had, we've heard there have been rumors about stuff around campus, like uh, the stuff about Baber saying or not saying uh, that players should uh, I mean, I know he said it didn't, it wasn't true, but allegedly he had said that, uh, or reportedly he had said that players shouldn't wear their uh, team issued stuff around just because they could be targets. Um, I just think it's like an unfortunate uh, confluence of things. We we had the incident with Prince Tyson Dolly a couple of years ago where he was also stabbed at a party. Um, it's just unfortunate. I think I think uh, it's easy for people who aren't with the program um, to get into parties. Uh, we've seen issues um, that weren't, that didn't have to do with the football program. Um, I know there was like a stabbing at a frat party a couple of years ago while I was on campus um, from people that weren't Syracuse students. And, you know, obviously you're never going to prevent, you know, and you don't want to prevent like the outside world from not, like, not getting onto campus or around campus. Like you don't want to be an ivory tower, but at the same time, um, there are always going to be issues when you have uh, a private school that exists um, in, you know, a city that has you know, some areas of uh, various, you know, different issues. Um, so it's, it's, it's a touchy subject, and, and obviously uh, we don't want to be offensive to anyone, um, but it's, it's just really unfortunate, and I think uh, there are just some realities that exist with the school and with the football program that uh, they have to overcome. And luckily, this isn't something that happens every day, but it's always scary when someone who was close to the program and, and obviously knew where people were going to be uh, could just show up and walk on to uh, or walk into South Campus or drive into South Campus and go do this. So hopefully uh, both players make full recoveries, and that's, that's of top of mind right now. Completely agree, and, and you know, we'll, I'm sure once we hear more, we'll be able to, to kind of project, you know, what this means for the depth chart and stuff like that. But right now, there, there are more important things in football for both of these players um, and for the Syracuse football team overall. I mean, if, if some of these rumors are true about kind of 
the atmosphere on campus right now um, definitely a little unsettling. So you know, uh, our thoughts again are, are with with the families of the, the kids, you know, Chauncey and Corey, um, and then just everybody involved here. That there's just not like there's obviously a situation that's that's ongoing and could be ongoing for quite some time. I'm just I just hope that that this passes without anything any other incident. Right, and that that's definitely the. The primary focus now, um, once you know Chauncey gets out of the hospital and and everything's confirmed that they're both of those players will be okay. Um, and obviously, the the letter or not the letter, the interview that that Howard had with Dick Mink, uh, like eight days before, is really? is very troubling as well. Yeah, which is crazy because that's like not a thing that you know usually comes out with incidents like the these. And there were definitely some some messages in there. Not that. Like Nate could have imagined anything like this happening, but in retrospect, uh, we're really concerning. And it's it's part of the reason why you hear like uh, players not wanting to stay uh, or necessarily always wanting to go to their hometown school. Um, sometimes that can be a great thing. They can be around family. They can be around uh, people that they trust, and and it can help keep them out of trouble. Or or but other times, obviously with Howard. Um, there were outside influences. Uh, he was clearly being told things that just weren't true or weren't realistic about his his football future, which may have contributed to whatever kind of jealousy or anger played a factor here. So it's it's a really strange um, story, just because we don't get to hear from the alleged attacker. Uh, so you know openly and so in such a long form uh and we did in this case obviously not talking about the assault that occurred um but you know it, you it's very easy to make connections as to why these things happened just based on the interview which came out uh this week so it's pretty crazy um and unfortunate uh and hopefully it all gets resolved in a manner which is uh good for the for everyone on the team because obviously this affects more than even just Winfield and Stism, unfortunately. Completely agree. I think, you know, again, thoughts and prayers. Hopefully the situation uh, resolves itself. Um, looking away from Syracuse campus, because obviously Dan and I, more than maybe most Syracuse fans, at least from those I've talked to, um, do have involvement in other sporting ventures and whether that's just me being a, a college football junkie or Dan having an actual job that revolves around it. Um, we do pay attention to other things going on. Um, the two big things that, that I noticed, at least in the back end today, and I think we start with the, I think less convoluted one and then go to the other, um, Eastern Michigan potentially looking into the viability of the football program. Now this is a program that um, has never really been successful, uh, struggles to put more than three wins up on the board on a yearly basis. Um, you know, it's, it's not like Michigan is, is a barren recruiting ground, but and it's not as if Central Michigan and Western Michigan struggle, but, um, you know, them more than maybe other schools just, just can't seem to put a winning product on the field and can't seem to make this thing financially viable. I know, um, I think the story was in the big lead, but I saw that the the general consensus was that you know most Mac schools don't necessarily have a viable athletic program without uh, the Mac subsidizing things, um, and, and it's it's interesting to see where this goes if Eastern Michigan really starts talking about it seriously. You know, we had similar talks from Hawaii a few months back, um, 
it'll be interesting to see, like, if Eastern Michigan were to come to some sort of, you know, either this happens or bust type, type deal, I am very, very curious to see what happens next. Um, because, you know, that could be, we, we keep talking about what's the first domino to fall that makes college football less than what it is. I mean, could this be it? I, I, I'll, I'll defer to you, Dan, see if you have any other kind of opinions on that. Uh, I actually hadn't seen this today, but that is interesting. Um, and it makes sense. I guess if there's one program that I can't think of uh, ever having any kind of sustained success recently, it's probably Eastern Michigan. And that includes Hawaii, which um, I think most of their issues are because of how unique the, uh, which we we went into a, in kind of weird depth a couple weeks ago, like the specific issues that come from being in Hawaii. Eastern Michigan is in Ypsilanti, which I think is pretty close to Ann Arbor, um, which means it's pretty close to Detroit, there are, it's, which is a, a solid football recruiting city. Not It's not great, but it's, you know, Michigan's a pretty decent mid-level recruiting state. Um, maybe it's just a case of there not being that enough players to go around, so where Western and Central can maintain decent programs, Eastern just can't, for whatever reason, quite keep up with them. Um but that seems a little far-fetched. Uh, so I don't know. It's, it, it doesn't make a ton of sense from, uh, from, from that angle. Um, but I, I feel like every other Mac school has had at least a moment, if not uh, a sustained uh, amount of success uh, over the last 10 or 20 years. And Eastern Michigan just can't seem to get there. Um, and I think uh, it's easy to point to something like this uh, when you are trying to make the argument that um, – Schools are losing money with college football, and I'm sure they're – and obviously, what, 100 schools say they do, uh, and then in reality, like there was that 538 piece which uh, was posted today about uh, – the more about the NCAA not actually losing money when it says it does. Um, but, I mean, if we're being realistic, if all these college football programs were losing money and hemorrhaging money like they say, there would be a lot of them that are talking about shuttering when really it's, it's a handful. Um but maybe Eastern Michigan is one of those because they just haven't been able to find the recipe for success. But um, I just don't get what sets them apart from Central and Western, which have had um, a, a good deal of it. Uh, maybe it's just head coaching hires. Maybe it's facilities. I don't know enough about Eastern Michigan's situation, although I do know they, they repainted their field gray the other year. Um, so that's something. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess if you told me there was – a football program not named Hawaii or like Idaho that would look about would, would be looking into possibly shuttering its program. I guess Eastern Michigan would be a candidate there. Yeah. And I know that, you know, Eastern Michigan was kind of on that conversation initially when the NCAA instituted that, whatever it was, is it 30,000 minimum um, attendance or, or some nonsense like that when they were trying to stop the influx of uh, the first influx of, of schools from, either nowhere to FBS or, or FCS to FBS. Um, and that was an influx, I think, back in, what, like, oh, I want to say oh one to 05. Um, and then there was, a, there was like, a three-year stopgap. Um, and, and then, obviously, you know, that gave way to a second rush um, when the WAC was dying um, and conference realignment was, was going, where another, what, at least four to five programs, if not more, by the end of it, I think we'll end up with eight. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, end up joining and, and I think you know for some of these schools like schools like Georgia Southern Appalachian State like th- these are these are schools that can easily support um, you know the minimum 
Um, for Appalachian State, I'm sure that they were one of the many schools that voted against, um, you know, Idaho and New Mexico State sticking around the Sun Belt, if only because, like, even if even if they're reimbursed, even if, um, you know, part of it is those schools subsidizing the rest of the, the more geographically aligned schools in the conference, it, it's still a lot of travel cost um, for them from a football standpoint to have to go to places that, you know, really don't benefit them, whether that's, you know, Moscow, Idaho, or, or Las Cruces, New Mexico, um, Georgia State, Georgia Southern, uh, you know, the, the Lafayette and Monroe's of the world, none of them have any reason to be in those places. Um, and it becomes tougher and tougher um, over the course of a few years, especially when you're a smaller athletic program that maybe isn't drawing more than 30,000, but you don't, you don't hold in your stadium more than 32. Um, it becomes tougher and tougher to legitimize that spend when it could be you know spent elsewhere, and there's plenty of other more viable FCS options in, in the region. Um, so I, I don't necessarily know if, if every school's out of the woods just yet. Um, obviously, like you said, that 538 piece... Um, Definitely identifies that schools aren't losing money, but I think that some of those numbers, and it didn't really dive into this a ton, some of those numbers are obviously helped out by, by the, you know, the power conferences and specifically the, the top tier of those power conferences because, as we all know, not all power, conferences, not all power conference teams are created equally. Um, and you look at, you know, for every, for every school like Alabama and Texas and Notre Dame, there's three schools like Syracuse and Wake Forest and B.C., Right, and I, and I think Syracuse, Wake, I mean, I don't know about Wake Forest, but Syracuse, <laughs> I imagine, in reality, comes close to breaking even, if not actually make money on the football program um, on an average year. Maybe under G-Rob they weren't, or under Schaefer the last couple of years they weren't. But overall, like, just the, the football football wouldn't be what it is, and there wouldn't be, uh, it wouldn't be growing in terms of the teams that are playing FBS football if... Uh, if schools weren't generally making money or, and you can't even think about it as pure revenue for the programs. Like think about the uh, external benefits to the school. Um, if like, say uh, I'm trying to think of a program that's like way expensive and claims that it's losing money. Like, like the big 10, when they, when they talk, you know, cause the big 10 always throws this nonsense at the wall. Um, and then they get paid $40 billion to pop or whatever it was the other day. Um, <laughs> But, but the, yeah, they were going to do D3 that one time. Uh, like, say, um, Minnesota, which is a average program with, you know, an unremarkable fan base. You know, not that not, not a knock, just compared to, like, Michigan, Ohio State, all them. If Minnesota cut their football program, and they probably argue that they don't make money on it, um, which I imagine they do, um, imagine how many in-state students are going to... I mean, like the lack of applications, the lack of students that want to go to a program, a school that has a football program, um, the donations that come uh, based on uh, pride in your school that a lot of it is generated by the athletic programs, even when they're not like national championship level. Um, like there are all these other things that aren't going to get directly wrapped up in revenue and money spent um, that come directly from having. Uh, good athletic departments. So um, a lot of these schools can say that they're losing money or that it's a, they can't pay players because of this and that. But in reality, um, they're making money in certain places, even if it's not uh, directly on a spreadsheet. Um, now, for an Eastern Michigan, who knows? Because they've been so bad 
and they're not a big school to begin with, and they're in the small town, and they're not, you know, recruiting top players, and there's a lot of alternatives in the state and in the MAC um, that maybe they're in a position where it doesn't make sense. But then, like you said, there's Old Dominion, there's Charlotte, there's uh, schools like UTSA recently, and and all these other schools that are coming into the FBS, Georgia uh, Georgia State and Georgia Southern. Um, that are in more viable geographic areas and are doing well or at least, you know, making progress. And so maybe maybe it's a, it's just a, a bad combination of things for Eastern Michigan. But overall, like, if college football wasn't tenable for small schools overall, these schools wouldn't be adding football programs. And we wouldn't be adding FBS teams almost every year. Exactly, and that's the... That's the interesting question now is like, okay, like if football is not viable, then why are there hundreds and hundreds of programs from FBS all the way down to NAIA? Like obviously, obviously this, this thing makes money and, and let's not, let, let's stop pretending that it doesn't. Cause yeah, if, if, if it didn't, people would start being serious about, I don't know, maybe we should cut this thing. Um, if a school, if a liberal arts school is 7,000 kids, and, and, you know, minimal marketing budget and, and a D3 program, if they can have a college football team and be proud of it and happy with it, then I don't understand why, like, any D1 team would, would also would decide to willingly get rid of theirs. Um, it just doesn't make any, any, any sense when, when you look at those things on their face. Um, you know, I, I think in general, you're right, there, there's tons of, of data that show that successful programs, especially successful football programs, um, you know, drive applications, um, and, and kids really do pay attention to this stuff. I mean, you look at Missouri right now is dealing with record lows um, in terms of um, applications this year because of what happened on campus last fall. Um, when Syracuse, you know, won the national championship in 2003 in basketball, um, they had to, they ran out of room housing-wise, and they had to put kids in the Sheridan for a couple of years. Like, I mean, the, the links are all there. there. There's a very clear line between you know, um, athletic prowess or, or just positive things happening on your campus and, and applications. Kids do pay attention now more than ever. Um, and, and a football program, even if it's not great, um, is still a positive thing on campus and it's a selling point um, that, you know, 129 schools can, can give that, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of other schools can't um, of, of various sizes. Yeah, the specific example that always resonates with me, and I just pulled up the article again just to double-check the numbers. Um, so in 2012, I believe, Texas A&M, it was their first year in the SEC. Uh, it was, if I'm, I'm right on that, I believe. Yeah. Um, 2012. It was their first year in the SEC. They beat Alabama. Johnny Manziel won a Heisman and was the most exciting player in the country. Um, that fiscal year... Texas A&M raised $740 million in donations, which was like by far the most they had ever done. And Texas A&M is a huge school, obviously. I'm sure they make a lot in donations to begin with. But they almost made, they made three quarters of a billion dollars from one fiscal year because the football program was like top 10 and beat Alabama in a game and went to, uh, I think, the Sugar Bowl that year. Like they didn't win a national championship. They had a breakout season and they had an exciting quarterback, and it was worth $740 million to them. And Texas A&M isn't, like, the only program. I know they have, you know, big boosters and oil money and everything, so there are, there's, you know, a little bit of a difference there, and there are similar things going on at TCU. Uh, the oil boom has helped those Texas programs a lot. But they're not the only 
program with rich boosters and rich uh, people who get excited about football and donate to their school. So if that happens in A&M, just think of like what an average good season means to an average school. Like that's still millions of dollars, and uh, that that a lot of it comes from you know you being proud of your alma mater uh, for even dumb reasons. Like honestly, like being proud of your alma mater for football, if you just take it from like an academic standpoint, it's probably a dumb thing. Um, yet it's probably one of the biggest reasons why people donate to FBS football programs. So yeah, these things like you can't you can't argue that they're not worth uh, keeping and it's not worth trying to do right by the players when they have, they can potentially have that kind of economic impact. Oh, completely. And like you look at, again, and you brought up some great examples there. You look at, it doesn't even need to be recent success or recent phenomenal success. I mean, look at USC, uh, a program that is largely underwhelmed for, for almost 10 years now. And they just built like some freaking spaceship, um, you know, practice facility and, and their donors, I mean, I'm in LA. Their donors will give any amount of money to to try to to try to get USC football back to where it quote unquote belongs, um, and they don't care that the, that the recent success might not match, you know, everything. I think that their their bigger concern is is just on how do we get this football program back, and because they've seen what success looks like there, um, you know, they're they're willing to spend all that money. I mean, where college sports and especially football have an advantage on pro sports is that you have an automatic refresh of the fan base every four years. You have an automatic addition of several thousand every year, minimal. Like, in pro sports, if if pro sports were completely reliant on the donations of its fans, um, there's a lot of pro sports teams in America that wouldn't exist anymore. They wouldn't. They wouldn't because of minimal interest, because of minimal success over, over decades. And you could say that for a lot of different teams that have fallen flat. I mean, you look at, you know, successful franchises now, like the Arizona Cardinals, were very unsuccessful for a very long time. The Detroit Lions have largely sucked for upwards of 40 years. Uh, the Cleveland Browns, same thing. Um, th- these are franchises that, again, if, if fans were asked to do... If fans were asked to do what college football fans are asked to do, they wouldn't do them. Um, and, and, and that kind of, you know, it's something that, like, isn't really written about and really isn't talked about. Something I was just thinking through while you were talking, Dan, is that, like, why college football can't go away and none of these programs are going away because they have a market advantage over all of its competitors um, in, in terms of what else you could be doing with your time and money. Like, no other, no other sports entity has this automatic addition of thousands of fans and, and they're always going to outweigh the amount of ones that die. <laughs> Like you're just going to see an addition every single year of your fan base. They're going to graduate, and at most, especially the large state schools, they're going to stay within a decent area, and 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 they're going to be within shouting distance of the school and the stadium, and to spend money and be boosters towards the program. There's this is a no lose situation if you have a D1 program, um, and and I, I I'm tired of seeing the, the doomsday. Scenarios painted for any program that currently sponsors, you know, FBS football. Yeah, and if you're actually losing money on FBS football, don't play FBS football. <laughs> like, if your school is hemorrhaging money, like some claim to do, don't have it anymore. And that's unfortunate because I hope I, I am fu- in full support of 
uh, expanding FBS football. It means more kids on more scholarships get more opportunities. That's always good. But if your program like legitimately can't sustain itself, you're going to put your school under uh, because of it. Don't have it, and schools haven't done that. So I think like I think if that was a real issue for 99% of schools, we would see some cut. And really, it's an issue for maybe four or five. So. And we'll see what happens. And they're still, and they're obviously not rushing to do it because Hawaii could have, like, or could Hawaii could probably argue that they shouldn't have one, and yet they're still trying to make it work. So clearly, they they even see, you know, if we get it right, the benefit outweighs, uh, you know, the possible issues. So um, that's that, that just it always annoys me when people like stream poor and then you know actually they're making money hand over fist, or uh, and and they're really just using it as an excuse to. Uh, I mean, the most of the arguments to not pay players, and it just bothers me. So, um, hopefully, uh, I mean, this is a the most unrealistic wish ever, but hopefully, people be a little more re- uh, upfront about how things actually are, um, and uh, we can be a little more transparent in the college football world because there actually have been gains in that in that uh, that arena against all odds. The NCAA's passed some rules that in recent weeks that have made things a little more open uh, with regards to social media and with regards to recruiting um, in a lot of different ways. Uh, so that's nice. And hopefully we follow suit as a cultural world and admit, Hey, there's money being made here. Let's debt some of it to the people that are actually putting their bodies on the line and doing the work uh, because everyone else is making money on it. And uh, let's just be open about it. Just no one's going to get mad about college football making money. Everyone knows that it happens. So I don't know why that, the charade just doesn't make sense to me. But that's because that, this is America, is. Dan. It is America. This is America. This you... is, that's exactly what happens. <laughs> <laughs> this actually falls in line with exactly what we've come to expect here. That's how you have super delicate Dan Dorero, uh <laughs> <laughs> doing doing what he wants for UCLA despite the wishes of the rest the, of his entire conference. He's doing the Lord's work. <laughs> That's easily, I mean, it's not my favorite college football story of like the year, but it's definitely my favorite college football story of the week, oh, <laughs> and it just came out today. <laughs> and, and because like, because we're over an hour already, I don't really want to go into it very far, but yes, I will say anyone who isn't paying attention to, to the fiasco going on in my favorite conference, the Pac-12, um, and yes, I, I say that over the ACC, Go look. Dan Guerrero basically decided to play super delegate with the uh, with the satellite camp vote, and then went and voted the way he felt like it, just like most of super delegates have done um, in the Democratic primary. Uh, yeah, it, it's basically the entire Pac-12 was feeling the burn, and Dan Guerrero's like, "Nah, Hillary," nah, and Hillary. voted that <laughs> voted that the Pac-12 was going to vote against against uh, satellite camps, despite. Every other school in the league being for satellite games. <laughs> yes. Meanwhile, said I do understand why UCLA would be against them. They're the only public school game in town um, in Southern <laughs> California that is in a power conference. There's a lot of benefits to them being uniquely positioned in that place. Um, USC, on the other hand, um, emission standards pretty high. Uh, not as high as maybe Stanford, maybe not even as Cal, but pretty high um private school they don't have the same i mean usc recruits all over the place ucla while they go into texas they go into other places they still spend a lot of their time and effort and money in southern california um and so i understand why they want to protect that area um 
but at the same time, if if, if you if you agree to join into, into a, a membership with other institutions or other people, and, and they entrust you with voting in 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 the way that the group does, and, and you decide otherwise, um, kind of a skeezy thing to do. Um, it didn't sway the entire issue. No, it didn't. But apparently, the Sun Belt had the same thing happen. Just obviously, that's less of yeah. No, apparently, the Sun Belt also got their vote hijacked, so it actually would have not passed if if everyone voted the way that their conferences wanted them to. The satellite camps would have been fine. <laughs> it's it's really funny and it's super American, just like college football. Yes. And on that note, I think we're done here. <laughs> <laughs> That was Dan. I'm John. You've been listening to Troy Noons, an absolute podcast. Uh, Dan, as a pl- uh, pleasure as always. Uh, I know your uh, your week off did not uh, did not make you worse for the wear at all here. Oh, thank you. I'm glad we glad we rolled right back into our our groove here and uh, got some fun general college football talking at the end. We did indeed, and there'll be plenty of that this summer. Like I said, we are off next week, um, so we'll have probably some like 90 minute show a palooza uh when i get back of just utter nonsense but uh yeah look forward to that um again that's dan i'm john uh go orange go orange with 25 percent off all new and up to 70 percent off previously leased furnishings do you really need a better reason to party we don't think so come visit our new court furniture clearance center with more than 9,000 square feet of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home and office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. Free food, prizes, and fun all weekend long at our Chandelier Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Up to 70% off. That's right, at Court Furniture Clearance Center. Get up to 70% off new retail prices and choose from a wide variety of previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. All items are court certified, guaranteed, and in stock, ready for delivery or to take home today. Make the smart choice and visit one of our five locations in the DMV or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off.